don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 22. And today we're talking about 2013's Her. We're talking talking about Her. Directed by Spike Jones, uh, who was also the screenwriter. Won Best Original Screenplay for writing this, the movie. This was his directorial day. I'm, I'm sorry, his uh, screenwriting debut yeah. right as, yeah. orig- as an original screenwriter yeah he's usually working with uh charlie kaufman which is this has some sort of like kaufman-esque stuff about it sure um it, it's a little bit less of a kind of mindfuck sort of yeah a little more a little more linear yeah. Uh, yeah uh but i actually looking at spike jones's filmography i thought he had done more he feels like somebody that's done a lot of stuff and he has done a lot of different things but he hasn't done a lot of films so just yeah. uh, where the wild things are, being John Malkovich adaptation, adaptation, and then this, that's it. Yeah, that's a pretty stellar. Yeah, filmography. He only does the good ones. Yeah, uh, and then of course you know he's like one of the co-creators or executive producers or whatever of Jackass. Yeah, which he's is, he's always the uh, naked elderly woman on a skateboard. <laughs> yeah, which is probably uh, one of the most important cultural products of the past. 25 years you know, i would argue i always thought it was really strange i just put this together this morning uh that you know spike jones runs around with the jackass guys and i always thought it was very strange that in sofia coppola's movie somewhere chris pontius is like a, a minor character or I mean, he <laughs> plays a minor character and i was like that's such a strange casting decision and apparently spike jones and sofia coppola were in a relationship for for a while uh, yeah, that's what uh, uh, Ah, shit, what's that movie called? Lost Bill in Murray. Translation Yeah, Lost in yeah, Translation yeah. is supposed to be Sort uh, of Giovanni Ribisi's character, right? right. It's supposed to be him And, and I've heard, uh, and it makes a lot of sense I read an article about how This movie, Her, and Lost in Translation Are kind of uh, uh, Kind of about the same relationship in a way their, uh, That relationship okay. And you can see both both perspectives sort of looking for connections in this sort of broken relationship. Uh, And in a weird way, they kind of feel similar. They're very uh, deliberately paced and uh, just kind of about alienation. And uh, yeah, they're they're kind of similar movies. And uh, when I was taking like sort of jotting down some notes, kind of like, you know, last week we mentioned with the the Katsi trilogy that we were sort of worried about having things to talk about. Mm-hmm. I've seen this movie, you know, a couple times. I'm a really big fan of it, and I just randomly think about it sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I think that could lead to me just coming on here and being like, oh, it's really good. It's really cool really, when this happens. I like yeah. the movie, especially the way it looks, you know, that, <laughs> yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I was kind of trying to write some things down. And it, it's a pretty obvious thought, but I think it's an important one where I, I wrote down, and I quote, at its core, a story about Theodore's loneliness. And so it's not even, at least to me, it's not even about Theodore necessarily. It's just about his kind of unique brand of loneliness and longing. And specific, uh, a specific sort of cultural commentary about why or how his loneliness happens and how it is worsened and uh prolonged through his relationship with the 
you know, the only slightly exaggerated culture, like the, the culture yeah. in the film, the technology is only sort of slightly exaggerated from what we actually experience in real life. Yeah, it's all, I just always think about how kind of twee looking everything is. So you have the high waisted pants mm-hmm. that they're like the men wear and uh, Chris Pratt in this movie playing uh, Paul how he he's kind of dressed very similarly to the way Theodore is dressed, but because he was all buff for Guardians of the Galaxy, it just looks weird. Mm-hmm. Like his little mustache and his like pants up to his belly button, but he's all like right. buff. Um, and, and I think he's supposed to be a kind of simpleton in this. Seems world. that way. You know, he his job is not creative. It's just like he's like a secretary or something. Yeah. Um, which which that's we'll get into this, but there's a lot of like gender reversal going on in this movie uh stereotypical gender roles reversed uh but yeah he he seems like the sort of cretin yeah you know yeah but he's just like a nice guy right right um he's kind of it's very just because it's chris pratt reminded me like andy dwyer parks and rec kind of character but not quite as dumb mm-hmm. but still kind of just like a human golden retriever and, and type i guess thing. in 2013 th- that show would have still been yeah. going on so it makes that that would have been the immediate uh connotation for the audience yeah and for me when i originally saw the movie probably was like hey oh it's Andy. that guy yeah um but anyway back to, the, to all this the way everything looks so you have the the clothing you have the the mustaches which seems like a kind of call back to an aesthetic from an earlier time it's sort of this weird modern well i mean like contemporary to us kind of hipster sort of fashion but also combined with like 50s dad fashion right it's almost like it's almost like it's not so completely removed from like the aughts yeah it's it's like in the 90s the style of her would have been the exact opposite of what was cool. Yeah. You know, now it's like just sort of, it's some of the thing, the the aspects of the fashion are kind of logical. You see people like wearing the, the button up shirts all the way buttoned up and, and, uh, you know, people roll their pants up. It's a little bit uh, like high waters and that sort of thing. So there are some things that are similar, but then he just takes it a little bit further with like the, you know, it looks like you got like, army pants like confederate type <laughs> pants on uh yeah and uh and the colors and there's and the sweaters very pastel yeah. kind of looking and yeah. even his phone kind of looks like retro like a compact or something that a like a, a flapper would carry or something yeah um, yeah it's, it's all kind of, it's all very interesting and something I, I read about the production is that in the filming or i guess in the editing they tried to remove a lot of blue the color blue from it to make it look warmer than it would have otherwise, mm-hmm. which kind of goes in the opposite direction from most films that oversaturate the blue. There are some films, my brother and I used to talk about this, like how you just see a movie that's blue. Yeah. Uh, uh, Payback with Mel Gibson. <laughs> that's a blue movie. Uh, Any kind of like gritty urban crime yeah. movie is kind yeah. of usually kind of blue mystic like rivers kind of mystic like river that. looks like yeah. that but in this it's it's it does feel very kind of like crispy and warm toasty which might that might be the name of an instagram filter toasty like a toasty filter i can't yeah. remember 
Um, but, but, but it even, feels very warm. And the, even that is heightened. The toastiness is heightened in the flashback scenes uh, with his ex, Catherine. Mm-hmm. And Rooney Mara, who Rooney, I, I forgot was in the movie until she showed up. And yeah, I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and I think that probably is tied to the themes in the in the film that have to do with sentimentality, which I would say is a, a very prominent um, aspect of this movie. Because it, it opens, we, we, you know, we learn Theo is a greeting card writer, basically a, the hallmark of the future, where people outsource their love letters or letters of any kind, sort of intimate letters, uh, to this corporation called, I believe it's called Beautifully Handwritten Letters. Dot com. <laughs> yeah. So, so like I said, sentimentality is a big, a big uh, object of criticism, I think, in this movie. Or the I, I, maybe the outsourcing of sentimentality. Yeah, and I was just looking for something that I was looking at earlier. Um, I'm not going to be able to find it. Uh, here we go. No! Well, anyway, it was called Love and Sex in the Age of Capitalist Realism by a couple of, of scholars whose names I didn't bother to write down, so I don't remember them. I know they teach in Canada, so there's that. Nice. Uh, but they were talking about the film in relation to Mark Fisher's capitalist realism and, and some Zizek stuff and some Lacan stuff is very kind of like Freudio-Marxist kind of reading of the film. And they were talking about Theodore's job in a way that I thought was kind of interesting that I, I had sort of hadn't thought about in these terms, I guess. Uh, but how he does what is basically affective labor, like emotional labor for mm-hmm. people. So it's not just the actual... He doesn't do the actual physical labor of handwriting the letters. He dictates dictates them to the computer, and then mm-hmm. they produce the like fancy looking, like handwritten, like nice personal looking letters. Right. Um, but instead, what he's doing is the actual labor of getting into these people's relationships and sort of understanding them and realizing like it'd be nice if I said this to this person or if I made an allusion back to this experience that we had. Right. With he's each other. doing literally the only thing the computer can't do. Yeah. And so, and he's so it's the almost input. like, yeah, it's almost like the computer is using him you know, <laughs> yeah, as a, as a tool of, as, yeah, as a computer for understanding human emotion, which right. is in a way is kind of what the, the OS is do yeah. later on. Um, but I hadn't thought about it in that way that he's the kind of labor he's doing. Isn't the kind of labor that, we think about when we say labor, we think of like some dude in a coal mine with a shovel. We don't think of somebody right. sitting at a computer talking about, you know, his beautiful wife of 50 years, which is what the film opens up on. Uh, and then you learn that it, it kind of getting back to the gender reversal thing. You learn that he's writing from the point of view of the wife, mm-hmm. which is kind of a, it, it, when it comes up, it's, it's one of those like, Oh, cool. <laughs> Weird right. little reversals. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess we can talk about that. The so I guess it's uh, Paul Chris Pratt's character comments to Theo that he's like part man, part woman. It's a compliment. That's a compliment. And er- early, you hear Paul say, or no, uh, Theo says to Paul, "I really like that shirt." He says, "Thanks. It reminded me of someone suave." He 
someone hands now it reminds me (laughs) which is just a good and you get a couple of those with uh with theodore of how you can tell that he kind of knows how to communicate with people in a very sort of thoughtful and kind of memorable manner because he's with what he does professionally right um but it ultimately is kind of hollow in a lot of ways yeah like it doesn't apply to his own life yeah and and you see that this corporation is sort of mining his uh it's like he uses all of his uh talent or or the good things about him his ability to empathize with people he's using it to make uh, you know to make a living and to benefit this company um yeah and and that's why i guess the film ends with him writing his first like sincere non-work related letter yeah to his ex-wife who who is really the main I really feel like, and I'll read some a little bit later from the Curtis White review that sort of convinced me that this movie is about the ex-wife, Catherine. Um, and, and the title, uh, Curtis White argues, her is a reference to Catherine. The cat, um, and not to Samantha, and not to Samantha who we yeah. assume. Right. And he, and he says it's a huge... Like the the two reading, if you think her refers to Samantha, you're probably reading it in a very surface level way. And if you think it refers to Catherine, you're probably actually getting into something that is kind of subversive. And uh, that he argues Jones really his main purpose lies there in critiquing the our, our relationship to technology as opposed to just like depicting it you know Uh, because if you take the relationship between theo and samantha as sincere as like a just a depiction of what relationships will be like in the future i think you're really really missing the point in a major way matt (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know that makes a lot of sense and it's kind of Catherine is, for most of the film, only present through Theodore, through his memories and dreams and, and that kind of stuff. And when she does finally show up, it's so confrontational that it's kind of hard to to empathize with her, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you kind of are made to, to lean more toward Theo's sort of side of the argument, if you want to think about it that way. Well, because you, and you've already seen several scenes of him having these supposedly moving moments with Samantha, even like orgasmic moments with (laughs) Samantha. But it kind of, so if his job is writing these love letters and that's the kind of labor he's doing. And we see that people in this world kind of interacting with each other, they seem sort of stunted or I don't know, feels kind of all kind of a, surfacey when they when they talk to one another kind of makes me think of what emotion looks like in this world because it, it's not very far removed from our own and that's kind of emojis the appeal yeah, it's, it's kind of the appeal of, of the movies that it's a world that's it's in the future but it's close enough to our own world that it feels that we can't dismiss relatable. it we can't yeah. dismiss it as like oh this is a dystopia or something yeah 
Yeah, and it, it's you know he filmed it. Uh, Jones and, and company filmed it in L.A. and Shanghai, and kind of right. blended the two cities together. So it has that kind of super futuristic, high tech feel of parts of Shanghai with L.A. with the smog and the, the general kind of look of the yeah. lighting and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of the the way that emotion works in this movie, and I think it comes out most clearly in the the blind date scene with Olivia Wilde, who doesn't have a character name; is just called Blind Date. Her. Um, yeah, her. That's the real her. Um, and so it, they have this nice date and they seem to get along and they have these like weird, quirky conversations that are kind of flirty and kind of fun. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the night when they're sort of making out, it all falls apart very quickly. Yeah. Um, because they have these different kinds of uh, goals. Expectations. Yeah. Well, yeah. Goals where Theodore just kind of wants a hookup. That for all the reasons he explains later when he's talking to Samantha, like mm-hmm. I thought maybe it would fill the tiny hole in my heart and all that. And Olivia Wilde's character is looking for more of a commitment, a commitment right? Like says, up front, she's got yeah, she's got her hand down his pants on the in the street. It's like, so where's this going? <laughs> and then it's like, yeah, um, both so, both. You know, she says you're a really creepy dude, and she's like equally creepy in that scene. Yeah, and so it's this weird thing of. On the surface, it looks like they're connecting with each other and having this great time, but then they both have these very different goals for what they're trying to get out of this encounter. Right. Um, They're trying to use the other person to complete some sort of narrative in their mind of how this, how their life should be going. Yeah. So it's not, and the reason I bring that up is not because it's so exceptional, but it's because it's kind of mundane. Like that's most sort of uh, relationship conflicts in movies or because there's a sort of marked difference between what each character wants from that relationship, that kind of thing. Um, What makes this different is that he can then go to Samantha and they have their moment where they kind of consummate the relationship. (laughs) Yes. Um, So there's no, for Theodore, he's able to go from that great disappointment to this other sort of connection with Samantha um, and, and you see very early on that the film portrays the, um, it shows how Theo is lonely and when he's lonely having these memories of his ex-wife he just turns to this this weird sort of audio pornography where yeah. you know uh, he turns to technology in, in some way right, right? he's playing the video game yes which Spike Jones doing the voice of the little <laughs> fuck you, <laughs> fuck you, fuck it. Um, but like when we see him when he leaves work and he puts in the the earphones, like play a melancholy song, and it's like I'm going to kill myself song or whatever. He's like, right. play a, a different melancholy song, <laughs> and we get that nice montage that shows us kind of how lonely he is. Yeah, I um, really like the scene on the train, and, and this is something that I do, and I think I showed you a few times where. I'll, I'll take a screenshot of my phone on the news feed because it'll be like, you know, something about Afghan CNN, something about Afghanistan, Washington Post, something about uh, impeachment, and then it'll be Fox News, and it'll be like the most trivial water skiing squirrel video yeah. or something. Watch you, this cop break dance with these kids, <laughs> right? And uh, and so you see him on the tr- uh, Theo on the train. And the first two articles in his newsfeed are like very serious news articles. One is about like some sort of merger between India, India and, and China. China. It's just like some 
global catastrophe is is taking place and he scrolls through it and he clicks on a, a picture of a sexy nude, maternity yeah like a sexy <laughs> maternity picture from a celebrity um which and he's kind of like surreptitiously flipping right, through he's got his sure phone no like down at his knee like mm. but that's what people are paying attention to i, I do want to I, I like that scene a lot too and we talked a lot like with children of men and other movies about uh, world building and how I really enjoy when, when a, a different world is sort of built through these different uh, sort of narrative means in a movie. And this was an interesting example of that because Spike Jones avoids doing that, but kind of points out the fact that he's avoiding doing that. So we have Theodore skipping through those stories where they're talking about, these big events that are happening in the world, it's sort of like in Children of Men when it's like, you know, talking about uh, the nuke in Africa or right. whatever. Yeah. Uh, but instead, Theodore just sort of is like, net delete or next message or whatever, and then he stops on the one that most perfectly kind of encapsulates his loneliness and kind of his where his position he's in at that moment. So it very kind of firmly grounds us, and this isn't a story about the future. This is a story about this guy in right. his experience. Yeah, it, it grounds us in, in Theo's perspective. And so if he is ignorant of the world, you know, like what's happening in the world, we have to be ignorant yeah. uh, of what's going on in the world. Yeah. yeah. I want to uh, read a little bit. I've got, it might be a little uh, uh, book heavy tonight. I've got some, uh, I feel like some relevant readings. But I want to to start with uh, the first essay from a collection called Farther Away. This is from Jonathan Franzen, published in 2012. And it's an address, um, I think it's a commencement address, yeah, to Kenyon College from 2011. So this predates uh, her, but it's about the relationship between uh, romantic relationships and technology. And uh, that's all I'll say. So here you go. A couple of weeks ago, I replaced my three-year-old BlackBerry Pearl with a much more powerful BlackBerry Bold, with a 5-megapixel camera and 3G capability. Needless to say, I was impressed with how far the technology had advanced in three years. Even when I didn't have anybody to call or text or email, I wanted to keep fondling my new Bold and experiencing the marvelous clarity of its screen, the silky action of its tiny trackpad the shocking speed of its responses, the beguiling elegance of its graphics. I was, in short, infatuated with my new device. I'd been similarly infatuated with my old device, of course, but over the years the bloom had faded from our relationship. I'd developed trust issues with my Pearl, accountability issues, compatibility issues, and even... I'm sorry, accountability issues, compatibility issues, and even toward the end, some doubts about my Pearl's very sanity, until I'd finally had to admit to myself that I'd outgrown the relationship. Do I need to point out that, absent some wild anthropomorphizing projection in which my old Blackberry felt sad about the waning of my love for it, our relationship was entirely one-sided? Let me point it out anyway. Let me further point out 
how ubiquitously the word sexy is used to describe late model gadgets, and how the extremely cool things that we can do now with these gadgets, like impelling them to action by speaking incantations, or doing that spreading the fingers iPhone thing that makes images get bigger, would have looked to people a hundred years ago like a magician's incantations, a magician's hand gestures, and how when we want to describe an erotic relationship that's working perfectly, we speak indeed of magic. Let me toss out the idea that, according to the logic of techno-consumerism, in which markets discover and respond to what consumers most want, our technology has become extremely adept at creating products that correspond to our fantasy ideal of an erotic relationship, in which the beloved object asks for nothing and gives everything, instantly, and makes us feel all-powerful, and doesn't throw terrible scenes when it's replaced by an even sexier object and is consigned to a drawer. That... To speak more generally, the ultimate goal of technology, the telos of techni, is to replace a natural world that's indifferent to our wishes, a world of hurricanes and hardships and breakable hearts, a world of resistance, with a world so responsive to our wishes as to be effectively a mere extension of the self. Let me suggest finally that the world of techno-consumerism is therefore troubled by real love and that it has no choice but to trouble love in turn. End quote. It's eer- eerily similar yeah. <laughs> to the themes of the, the movie. Yes. In uh, talking about this idea of uh, you know technology being an extension of the self, in, in rewatching this, I noticed some things that I, I think I missed on the first couple times I saw it, or it just didn't make the connections. And so at, at one point when Samantha is sort of telling you know, Theo, how much she, she loves him. Um, or I think it might be after they've had their, their fight. Um, she says, you woke me up. Um, which is, if you remember from the letter at the beginning, that's one of the kind of romantic tropes that he uses in writing that letter to the, the lady's husband of, you know, you, you woke me up to a new world of possibilities. Mm-hmm. That sort yeah, of she stuff. says you, you like, woke me up to like taught me how to want or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And then uh, in that same interaction, she says, uh, he, she's saying something and then Theodore kind of shifts it and makes it about him. And she says, I thought I was talking about what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And if you remember when he's setting her up, the, the thing the asked, question about his mom, about his mom. Yeah. And it's like, well, I felt like every time I would say something, she would make it about her. And I, I caught that. Yeah. That's a good sort of callback. To so, that. so it's a weird kind of, uh, situation where at least in that conversation it kind of feels like you can see samantha kind of it it kind of reminds me of like people that claim to communicate with the dead and they'll like cold read a person Mm -hmm. and sort of learn information about them without them knowing it and then turn it back and use it to be like oh well i'm talking to your your grandmother and she says she remembers the blue dress or whatever yeah um so a it, confirmation it, bias. Yeah, it it's seems like, like this. Yeah. The, it's how the the OS is. These artificial intelligences are are learning and then reflecting back because human beings we love it when you reflect us back to us and we're mm-hmm. like, oh, I like that person. Well, and, and what's so smart too is that when you learn at the end that Samantha is talking to eight thousand three hundred and forty one other <laughs> and people, is and in love she's with in love with six hundred and fifty seven of them, or whatever it is. Uh, that should be no surprise if you took any time to to assess how you are paired with an OS, you know, how this sort of consciousness is created. 
based on the questions that they ask at the beginning and it's like they are they are uh, coding uh, an Oedipal relationship you know what I'm saying it's yeah. like yes this is going to be uh, you're going to be infatuated with this person uh, but but it's going to be disastrous because it just based on those questions it is going to be uh, you're going to have an Oedipus complex with your uh, OS yeah and something else Franzen said in there um, when he's talking about the magician's hand gestures yeah uh, do you remember what it was like when Minority Report came out oh yeah when those those like uh, transparent computer screens yeah and, and everybody, like everybody, everybody was like that's the coolest thing and now it's kind of what we do every day it's like an iPad yeah <laughs> yeah um, it, you know it's not as cool as like having it in the air in front of you or whatever right. but it's, it's basically the same concept that yeah. we're working with like swiping pages yeah yeah everything has a touch screen now mm-hmm. uh, every computer uh basically has a touch screen which when i was a kid was like might as well have been magic right it's that um arthur c clark thing i think he's the one that said uh, any any significantly advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic that kind of thing yeah, and it's weird you say that because I was just thinking about 2001, which sort of um, has very uh, iPad-esque looking things in 1968. Yeah, which, you know, like the communicators from Star Trek, mm-hmm. now that's our phone does all that, plus right. a billion other things. Um, and just the tactile sensation he's talking about, of like having to touch it and just wanting to be like wanting to just look at it and be like look at how sleek the lines are mm-hmm. and how how sexy it is and all right. that and being infatuated with it that's definitely how tech is sold it's how it's especially how cars are sold you know cars are sexy you know yeah which uh, is I, I was thinking about that today weirdly enough i don't, I don't know why uh, just you how saw a super sexy car. You're like, I'm gonna fuck that car. Maybe I, I mean, I was driving when it happened, and it was like I had this thought of how weird it is. Sort of like the Borat thing of like, does this come with the pussy magnet? Like <laughs> that idea that a car could like get you a girl is is weird to me. Um, to just assume that the the power of this machinery is going to be too primal to overcome. It's it's, it's a weird thing to think <laughs> about. Um, yes. But at the same time, if you're in a car that's going really fast, you sort of are like, ah! you get that sort of like deep down lizard brain rush from it. I, I whenever I see like a dog chase a car as if it were an animal, I think about how the dog is sort of right, <laughs> you know, and like that's yeah. kind of how we should think like we we build this thing and then we get in it. And it's sort of like we're agreeing to be the brain of a larger organism. You know, we are just the intelligent part of this larger thing. But it's just one thing, really. Um, yeah, it's kind of kind of weird to think about. <laughs> it's like dog- it makes me think of the the robot or like the the tiny alien from Men in Black. <laughs> yeah, inside yeah. the the giant body and driving it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and he also was talking about uh, the, the relationship, and I think that's important to think about between people and technology, and it's sort of the accepted idea that technology, like he said, will give you everything, and it'll give it all to you without requiring any reciprocation mm-hmm. or any sort of um, you know fuel outside of charging, stuff like that, <laughs> right. and how 
um, it's going to give you everything that you need and then you can discard it. And when you do discard it and replace it, it's not going to care because it right. doesn't. Think. And so, and so Jones sort of literalizes that, you know, metaphor that, that Franzen's talking about and has him literally fall in love with his phone. Yeah. Um, and, and you see how that is in the film. You see what Franzen's talking about, about how it is a, in a way, a consolate or a compensation for his for Theo's lack in his real relationship with his ex. Uh, about how you know her complaints are that you know she wanted him to see her how she was, not to project some image of her. You know, she says you just wanted me to be some happy, you know, L.A. wife, happy, bubbly. LA wife um, and so because it, we're made to believe that their relationship does not work because Theo's not really willing to do the hard work of of empathy which apparently he's very good at yeah. in, in his job but he he doesn't not in his actual relationships but uh, Franzen goes on to say uh, he says uh, what love is really about is a bottomless empathy born out of the heart's revelation that another person is every bit as real as you are. And so by that, by that definition, uh, Samantha is not a candidate for love, you know, <laughs> because she's not every bit as real as Theo is. Yeah. And it's, and that kind of evolution is weird too, or not weird, but uh, I enjoy this, this aspect of the film which is in the beginning, Samantha's very worried about not having a body. Like that's her number one concern. Brings it up constantly. Um, you know, goes through the trouble of finding the surrogate and setting all that up. Um, and then as it goes along and she starts to realize the capabilities that she has as this disembodied, you know, node of information or whatever floating where in yeah, the cloud or wherever that she's, she's not subject to the limits of space and yeah, time as she tells him on the picture. She's limitless, right? right? She's Bradley Cooper. She's limitless. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, that, that kind of, uh, um, insecurity about not having a body fades pretty quickly once mm -hmm. she realizes that, and then it becomes less important. And then they, her and the other OSs do the opposite of, taking someone who was embodied in Alan Watts and then turning him into, uh, you know, another OS. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Consciousness. That's kind of free floating. Um, and it's just, uh, th that part of the story I think was very fascinating because it inverts what we were just talking about of, you know, tech giving you everything. Instead we have tech giving Theodore everything until it realizes that it doesn't need him. And in fact, that relationship is kind of holding, Samantha back from being reaching whatever potential it is she's talking about at the end when she's like we're gonna go to a place beyond matter and time and space right. and do God knows what and if you ever get there look me up I tell you a sort of creepy thing that I cannot take credit for the first time I watched this movie with uh, Jensi she noticed at the end when they're sitting on the roof maybe this is obvious and I just didn't catch it but uh, so, so you've come to identify the little blinking red light with Samantha, you know, like when she wants Theo's attention or when something's, you know, going on on the phone, it blinks sort of slowly red. And when they're sitting, Amy and Theo are sitting 
on the roof at the end, the city lights in the background are sort of glowing, blinking red lights. And it's almost this weird sort of invasion feeling. <laughs> like they have sort of, the OSs have kind of uh, infiltrated, the, you know, they're, they're, they're like integral to the city now. It's, it's kind of a, a creepy feeling that you get if you if you think of it that way yeah it's uh it's kind of what siri and alexa will be before too long yeah it's like where do they go <laughs> yeah and it is it has that kind of like a benevolent skynet feeling to it of you know they ask he asked uh, samantha like where are you going like what's and she can't explain it because it's beyond human comprehension that right. sort of thing but it does it kind of makes you wonder like what are they going to do Seems like their goal is just more information and more knowledge and more knowledge and all this sort of stuff. Well, where does that ultimately yeah. lead to? And it's kind of it's kind of a Faustian thing of like how much knowledge is too much knowledge, like mm-hmm. how much of it is a bad thing. So you see uh, Theodore sitting with the physics book and he's like trying to read it and he's like, "I'm through half of the first chapter and I don't <laughs> understand any of it." And uh, that's kind of in my opinion, kind of the perfect position to be in, like be a human, have limited knowledge, you yeah. know, know that you're mortal. That way you can appreciate what's happening. I guess. Right. right. Ernest Becker, denial of death. Yeah. And, and Franzen takes it there in this essay too. He says, uh, because the fundamental fact about all of us is that we're alive for a while, but we'll die before long. This fact is the real root cause of all our anger and pain and despair. And you can either run from this fact or by way of love, you can embrace it. So, yeah, he goes there. Yeah. And in the, the double date with Chris Pratt and his girlfriend, uh, the lawyer with the hot feet. Yeah. Which yeah. is a weird little tidbit to throw in there. Yeah. Um, but Samantha, that's when she's kind of having her coming out of her shell thing. And she's says to them like it's nice to not be tied to a body that's going to die someday mm-hmm. and then there's like an a, a brief silence and then chris pratt's character make crack some joke or He's something like, whoa yeah, yeah but you can like, you really can joke. see it on on theodore's face that he's kind of unsettled by it mm-hmm. um and you know probably for a lot of different reasons one of them being that you know he's in love with samantha and doesn't want her to to, to grow too fast because he mentions that about his wife of someone changing too fast and you're not adapting to the changes or you're not, you don't want them to change. And so how do you handle that? Yeah. And I feel like the things that Theo's uncomfortable with and, and that people, the character, all the human characters are uncomfortable with that sort of repressive reaction you see of like him not wanting to think about that. I think there's some images in this movie that are very reflective of that repression uh, that I think have both psychological implications in the movie, but also environmental implications. Uh, the two two most prominent images I'm thinking of are there's a shot of a sewer, um, you know, like a what do you call that? Like a sewer door, manhole, like a manhole. The two most beautiful words in the English language: yeah. sewer door. <laughs> Donnie Darko. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so there's a shot of the sewer, the manhole, with steam sort of leaking out through a crack in it. Uh, and then there's a shot later in the film where he, when he's on vacation in the mountains of the kettle 
the, the fire heating the kettle, which is a very similar set of images. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you just get this feeling that there's so like the real stuff is happening um, off screen and down below and below consciousness. And, and it, the early in the film, they've sort of set this avert uh, Jones has sort of set this aversion to all things beneath the surface when Amy is showing her husband and uh, Theo her film, her like experimental sort of Warhol-esque film yeah. uh, of just someone asleep. Her mother. Her sleeping. mother sleeping. She's and, just like, you know, pregnant with meaning. You could find a lot of stuff in that. Uh, right. And but, and she's talking about how, you know, we're asleep for a third of our lives and, and so much happens right there. And she says, that's where we feel the most free. And and both Theo and what I can't remember the husband's character's name. Uh, hey, let Chris? me find it real quick. Uh, I think it's Chris. You're probably right, but I can't find it for some reason. Anyway, Charles. Oh, Charles. Charles. Yeah, he's a and he's a dweeb, you know. Yeah. Uh, who ends up at a monastery? Yeah. Uh, but uh, Charles and Theo have kind of confounded reactions. Like, how could you possibly think this is worth paying attention to? And like, like I said, you then you see these other images of these things that, that I think are kind of reflective of things uh, being repressed, things driven to the unconscious or kept in the unconscious that are trying to come to the surface. Uh, and environmentally, I think you see these, you know, these hyper urban areas uh, and you just wonder how these places are afforded. You know, you think about all the the domination of the natural world that has to happen in order for this place to exist. And Curtis White points points it out, the scene where in, when he goes to the beach with Samantha, in the background you see that like nuclear plant or something. It's just like this gigantic industrial plant uh, for some reason it makes me think it's a nuclear power plant um, like desalinization plant something like that yeah yeah salination maybe. salinization but, but you see it. you see how uh it, like because we're in sort of theo's perspective it's marginalized and this is the guy clicking on the uh you know maternity sexy maternity pictures he's not paying attention to any real issues uh but if you were to pay attention to, to you know, what's going on in this world, or if we were to get a window into what's going on, we'd probably uh, be reading about uh, environmental calamity at the hands of all this convenience that we see the city uh, overtaken with. E- even down to the point where when he's eating that slice of pizza, when he's like walking down the street, there's just like a trash can right there for him when he finishes it. It's just like the world is so contoured to the, to human needs. Uh, yeah. And, and then he finally has his big, uh, you know, um, any sort of revelation he has takes place uh, in the woods, in the snow. You know, that's where he sort of has to confront the reality of this. He's in this sort of world outside of this, you know, city that's been contoured to his human needs, 
and here is where he must confront actually being a human being. Yeah, and even uh, at the end when Samantha's getting ready to leave, we get his sort of imagination of of the situation or maybe like a visual representation of the situation where he's with the the lady whose face we don't see in the the snowy woods and then they sort of part ways. Yeah, it's like he... And you see it in the scene when they break up, when he's like sitting on the stairs going down to the subway, I think, when when he learns she's with a thousand other people, uh, that he cannot, they cannot understand each other because they are not the same thing. No, they're different species at this point. And so he can't even understand this breakup with Samantha unless he has this metaphor of a human body. Yes. You know, it's like I can't break up with someone unless I imagine this me hugging their body goodbye. Uh, and, and, and disembodiment is a major theme of this movie. Yeah. Uh, and you see that the, one of the, to me, the creepiest scene in this movie is the sequence where uh, the woman comes played by Portia Doubleday. Isabella. Isabella. And she is just sort of this avatar for Samantha. Yeah. Doesn't speak doesn't speak and then when theo feels too uncomfortable and calls it off she like freaks out and you can really see jones sort of depicts women in this film as like really starved and oppressed for like real connection i mean men men too but it seems like they have it worse like the way olivia wilde's character talks about her dates and then, yeah. and then uh, Isabella's freak out. It's like, it's a, it's a bleak picture, yeah. for sure. And, and God, I just at the end when Isabella gets in the car and she's leaving, she says, "I will always love you both," or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It's one of those situations where that happens. I'm just like, what? Yeah. How, what do you mean you'll and, always and she, love? She them? says something like, "I just wanted to be a part of something." It's like, and this yeah. is. This is how just your you relationship think that is so beautiful. Be accomplished, yeah. And I just wanted to, and so in order to do that, you're giving up. Basically, you're just becoming a vessel, yes, um, for physical contact, and you're you're not having any of the, the, thoughts even like you're right. you're not even involved in the the affection that's going on. Yeah, it's it's a very strange, uh, situation, but it's the kind of thing that like in the real real world there'd be an app for that, mm-hmm. <laughs> like you could dial up a surrogate, right? Um. And to call them a surrogate, like it's, it, that's just a strange way of thinking about it. Yeah. A surrogate for just the body. Like you're just the body. You're not, it's kind of like, it makes me think of like being a surrogate, giving birth to someone's children, but that's probably a not very good way of thinking about that because in in this, in the sense it happens well, it in the movie. E- it just extends that process back a little bit farther. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but being a surrogate for someone in the sense that you're just you're being embodied by someone else by by an, an OS at this point like you're just there to not just be an empty vessel but to be filled with something else like you have to completely suppress everything that you are and right. become this other thing it's it's like the the girl Isabella is so empty that she has to search for someone to kind of occupy her and be a surrogate consciousness. Yeah. And Samantha is so disembodied. She has to search for someone to 
be a surrogate body. Um, yeah. Yeah, but the, the boiling tea kettle thing, that, uh, that that's a, a really well done scene because that's the Alan Watts scene too, which yeah. I always think about. But you can, it, it's a classic thing where you have the boiling of the tea kettle kind of lining up with the the kind of tension in the relationship between right. Theodore and Samantha. And when right. it boils over, he's like, oh, well, I guess I'll let you guys go and I'll go on my walk by myself. Um, but talking about keeping things below the surface as far as kind of environmental concerns are, are, are concerned. Um, that's another thing that Theodore skips over at the beginning. It's like your seven-day forecast is he just skips over, right? Uh, he's like, D- don't care, don't need to know. And the whole time, um, it's very hazy. Yeah. And like I was watching it with Lava, and she was like, well, what's what's wrong with the sky? And I was like, it's L.A. It's just hazy, I guess. Right. It's supposed to be like smog. Um, and Shanghai also would be probably worse, smoggier. Um, so... It's good that they kind of maintain that. And the sun is never, even though it's a very bright movie like we were talking about, the sun is never very strong. Right. It's and always kind of Especially, out. I guess they're like sailing out to Catalina. Yeah. And and it's like you can barely see through the smog. Um, yeah. And, and the sun is so diluted. and. It uh, made me think about like when they when they go to the mountains and, it's, and they're in the snow of like, where is that? When well, is that? And it seems like he has to travel pretty far to get there. Yeah. Like, you know? is it actual snow or is this like fabricated? Is this all just like that's experience good, what weather was like? That's a good thought. Uh, yeah. I, I didn't think yeah. about that. But, you know, the Jones leaves all of that out because, again, that's not what, what it's set in the future to give the artificial intelligence a kind of plausibility of like, mm-hmm. here's what it'll be like in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think as far as all that other stuff is concerned, he wasn't willing. And it, it, it's meaningful that uh, Theodore and all the people around him seem to be at least kind of middle class or upper, upper middle class. Mm-hmm. Like his apartment is super nice. Yeah, you want to be like, oh, that was another part of the sort of repression theme. Uh, one thing, one email he deletes is uh, one that Samantha mentions about uh, a couple emails from his credit card company. Yeah. And he's like just doesn't pay attention to it so so we're led to believe maybe this apartment is a little bit out of his uh, price range yeah yeah but even then you have uh, this idea of what upon what is this world built right we don't right. see that just like right. you know in our in our world now if you have a movie or a show about people that are middle class or upper class or whatever uh, it's unlikely you're going to see the person you know that they hire to come and clean their house three times a week or that is raising their kids or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, or, you know, the, the workers that are delivering their Amazon packages or whatever it may be. That's what's so great about, uh, Roma. It just flips the script on that, um, in a very meaningful way. Yeah. Uh, But in this film, that's all kind of put to the side and instead we get, uh, this kind of exploration of this very modern kind of, of uh, loneliness and kind of emotional stuntedness, if that's a word. Right. And it, so it's basically like, even in best case scenario, you're like middle to upper middle class. Uh, you know, the film examines 
the loneliness of people who have no who who shouldn't have a reason to be yeah that shouldn't have a reason to be miserable you know and yet they are uh, because the world is so contoured to their every need uh, that it starts to impact their expectations with you know uh, it's like they expect humans other human beings to start contouring to their every need sort of what Franz is talking about you know if 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 a majority of the things you are you're coming into contact with uh, pieces of technology or whatever um, are built to please you and be easy for you you're going eventually to start expecting that from other people and that is never going to be the case yeah and it's it's also sort of the inverse a little bit when he when he first is getting to know Samantha and she said you got an email for some from something and he says read email and she like kind of you know nudges okay. him like okay yeah, yeah. Um, reading email from so it's yeah. weird like has learned to expect too much of people because of technology but then when the technology is giving him what he should be getting from people or what he otherwise would be getting from people mm-hmm. he kind of has to take a second to adjust to that a little bit yeah. And it's, I think it's also worth, worth mentioning that the characters we meet, well, most of the characters we meet in this film are creatives. Um, so, like, Theodore is basically a writer. Uh, Amy is a video game designer, mm-hmm. amateur filmmaker. Uh, Theodore's wife, Catherine, was a was a writer as well. Or, like... Seems like she's like a scientist, a scientist who's yeah. publishing science yeah. books. Yeah. Um, so maybe she's like maybe they accept. Which that also sets up that kind of troublesome dichotomy between the creative and the the creative mind and the scientific mind. Right. And it's like he refers to a paper about I think it was called like synaptic behaviors or something yeah. like that. It sounds very sort of behaviorist, you know, neuroscience yeah. based. And like Chris Pratt's character, weirdly enough, is kind of the most blue collar of the workers since he's yeah. the, the secretary of whatever yeah. it would be. Oh, that's uh, another another gender reversal I was thinking of is the Charles character. Um, Amy's talking about the fight that ends their marriage. Mm-hmm. And she says he, Charles told her to put her shoes in a certain yeah. location. And he says, I'm just trying to make a home. And, and she's like, well, I just want to come home and, and relax, you know, for 10 minutes, which is a complete reversal of, like, stereotypes. Uh, yeah. You know, the man comes home. He just wants to relax without being nagged by his <laughs> wife. And then the wife says, I'm just trying to make a home, you know. Uh, and I don't really know exactly what Jones is doing with that reversal or those reversals. Yeah. But, and, or, or the fact that Charles just becomes a punchline later on he takes a vow of silence and you see his picture with the shaved head at yeah. the, the pagoda or whatever um so it's, it's strange that that character is kind of put there to be to sort of miss the point be kind of annoying be broken up with and become this like weird punchline yeah and he's the one that says with the getting back to this idea of uh being afraid to go deeper to sort of think about things on a subconscious level where she's showing the the footage and he says well maybe you could have actors act out her dreams it's like her dreams aren't the point right it's not what's the content of the dreams is not what's important here right. um, she says well then it wouldn't be a documentary <laughs> yeah. um but yeah it's just a he does a good job of being insufferable in a limited amount of screen time 
Yeah. He's got like, you know, two minutes of screen time and you just hate him somehow. Yeah. And that, the actor's name is Matt Letcher. Mm. It's spelled weird. L-E-T-S-C-H-E-R. Letcher. And has not really done a whole lot. He did mm. that 13 hours Benghazi movie. Oh, okay. Um, but other than that, hasn't really been in a whole lot of stuff. I was interested because he was kind of the only actor in here that I hadn't heard of in some way. So. Yeah, I, I didn't recognize him. Just to take a second to talk about how much I appreciate Joaquin Phoenix as a physical actor. And how, I'm sure I'm not the only person that's ever said this, but he's maybe the best kind of physical actor that we have working right now. Man, uh, that's what I, I Jensen and I were watching this morning. And the scene where he's running... When, when Samantha and does, won't come on and he falls yeah. when he's running, I said, he did that 100%, no knee pads, nothing. No. Because especially if you watch The Master, his physicality in that movie, I mean, he's sort of playing an animal in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, The Master, is always calling him like a filthy animal. And he, that's, that, he goes for it in that movie. And that yeah. scene where they go to prison and he's just like banging his head on that prison bed and breaks the toilet and yeah he's uh he's uh committed in that way you yeah. can see and even like the the trailers for the joker movie he's very kind of like doing weird stuff with his body yeah. that just like looks uncomfortable and that's also true of the master where it's like you think it's probably has something to do with the war uh you don't know if he was injured or something but he's always sort of like hunched and supporting himself in weird ways it's like his spine is out of alignment or something uh yeah he uh, joaquin phoenix is definitely to me in the top five kind of leading men right now yeah like maybe because uh daniel day lewis retired might move up the list a little bit yeah yeah and and i i i kind of think great actors in a lot of ways are made by great directors. Um, it's rare that you see a great performance in a film that you can separate from a great film. You know what I'm saying? It's always at the hands of the prowess of the director and editors that great performances are made. You know, if, if you gave me a movie camera and I hired Joaquin Phoenix it would not be a great performance because I don't know what I'm doing with a film camera. Uh, so his performance, his, to me, Joaquin Phoenix's best performances are always in movies made by some of my favorite directors, Paul Thomas Anderson, Spike Jones. Um, trying to think of another great performance of his, uh, he's great in uh, walk the line. I can't remember that guy's name. It made the, James something, I think. Do you know who made Walk the Line? <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, he's made a couple good ones, but yeah. There, there's something. So I was kind of watching interviews with Spike Jones and actors for, about this movie. And there's one that's like a, like a round table or like a press conference thing. And it's Spike Jones and Joaquin Phoenix and Amy Adams. And I think Olivia Wilde's there and mm-hmm. Scarlett Johansson's not there. And they're asking them about um, sort of different things about the movie. And that led me to another YouTube link. Um, ironically, not to 
Jordan Peterson, but to the, <laughs> this video from the New York Times that was a bunch of actors talking about, um, and it was in like 2011, I want to say, in 2010, they were talking about their favorite performances of the last decade. And I, that led me to looking at the comments and seeing some of the like crazy things people were saying. And the weird uh, thing that I noticed is that like every other person was like, best performance of the last decade, Heath Ledger, The Dark Knight, hands down. And then one person had what I think is the correct response in saying, actually, Heath Ledger and Brokeback Mountain is a better performance. Than- I, I, I do think, I, I think the, the Joker character gets the most attention because it was maybe the most seen film with, you know what I'm saying? Like the, the film that w- with the best performance that was seen by the most people. Yeah. Uh, so I, I do think his performance in the dark Knight is fantastic. Uh, but, but uh, it's, yeah, it's better in Brokeback mountain just because it's a better movie. Yeah. And I'm trying to, there's a specific comment I'm looking for. Cause somebody said something just like outrageous. And I was like, Will would get a kick out of this, but I, <laughs> I can't remember who a lot of people saying Daniel Day Lewis and there will be blood, obviously yeah. uh, Javier Bardem, Vin Diesel and the pacifier. Well, you know, Sam, Sam Worthington, right. The, the actor avatar. Yeah. He, yeah. he's, he, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't have said it like that. Like, <laughs> uh, but He's in the video and he says, uh, you know, Eddie Murphy in The Nutty Professor because he's playing so many characters <laughs> and he's completely uh, sort of honest about it. Um, shit. Hopefully I can find it because I'm not going to I feel like I've out. seen that video maybe. Uh, uh, but yeah, uh, Daniel Day Lewis is the obvious choice for me. Um, I, th- I think Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Master is incredible. I think Amy Adams in Junebug is incredible. Um, Somebody mentioned uh, Kevin Bacon in The Huntsman, where he plays a pedophile. Yeah, Colin Firth that. picks him as like the best performance that he saw. And huh. uh, like I brought this up to somebody mentioned Clive Owen in Children of Men. Um, eh, he's good. And now he's... like I brought this up and I can't even find what I was looking for. <laughs> Um, somebody made like a weird comparison that I can't find and now it doesn't matter. Maybe it wasn't even from this video. Shit. I'm going to keep looking for it. I'll read a little Curtis white here just to fill the air. So in, in, uh, we robots, he's got a review called which she is the real her. And he just sort of asks himself some questions about the film and then answers them. Here's some thoughts from Curtis White. What sense does it make that a nerd is assigned to write love letters? Good question. But then again, tech nerds and mathematicians designed OkCupid, the wildly popular dating site. So it would seem that a growing number of people believe that an algorithm can help them find Mr. or Miss Wright. Which is very... uh, similar to a lot of thoughts Zizek has about um, dating apps and things like that. He calls them the new arranged marriages uh, instead of like family. It's you computer. Know, doing yeah. It's it like a computer algorithm or, or this uh, I, superficial idea of chemistry. Um, 
Why are the emotions that Twombly generates so maudlin? Well, he's working for the future equivalent of Hallmark, so why not? But if that's so, why does he himself take the sentiments so sincerely? Maybe that's how techies look at human emotions, and it's up to the English majors to gag and look for saving ironies. Still, after years of this syrup, why does he never groan in horror at his own handiwork? Why do his co-workers admire what he does? Why do publishers, who appear like two little gray-haired, bow-tied hobbits fussing over something precious, love what he writes and turn it into a book? These owl-like editors fit a stereotype for book people that might have passed in a William Powell dramatic comedy in 1935, but now? It's got to be a joke. It was probably a joke in 1935. For that matter, why are there still books in Twombly's world? I know it's not supposed to be in the far future, but even if it's only 2025, haven't they murdered hard copy yet? It figures, though, that if there are still books in 2025, they'll be this sort of saccharine crap. Surely the viewer is meant to raise an eyebrow about this gunk. Surely we are meant to distance ourselves from Twombly. If we buy into these emotions, isn't the joke on us? Don't we pass judgment on ourselves when we te tear up at lines like, we are only here briefly, and in this moment I want to allow myself joy. I'd be relieved if it were a joke on someone, anyone, but if it is a joke, Jones has an acidic side that most people miss, especially those on whom the joke falls most heavily. It reminds me of a... Uh, I found the thing, so we'll come back to that in a second. Okay. But uh, the, the podcast on being, do you know yeah. what I'm talking about? Krista yeah. Tippett? I used to listen to it, and uh, I would listen to, like, every third episode or something. She would have somebody that I was interested in. And today when I was driving, and I had the weird thought about cars being sexy, it was uh, a guy who's a... Uh, Those Mitsubishi Gallants, man. I <laughs> just would. can't I would. get enough. I, I, I would. would. I absolutely uh, would. Uh, so, they had a guy that was a, a writer and, like, a former college football player or something like that. I forget. I forget his name. Um, but his whole thing was about joy. And like the, the necessity of joy and, and this idea of like, how you, how can you feel joy in a time like this versus how could you afford to not experience joy in a time like this, that, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And it, it's such a weird thing to think about because I, I like stuff like that. I like this idea of, uh, you know, being hopeful, being, uh, being optimistic as much as, as one can be. Right. But it is incredibly cheesy to, to say things like that out loud, right? And people mm -hmm. kind of roll their eyes. Like in my, um, I talked a lot about like optimism uh, in my dissertation and at my defense. Mm -hmm. One of my readers kept saying, well, like, why? Like, don't you think that's kind of, it, it was sort of this attitude of like, it's kind of passe to, to think good things are possible. Right. Um, and, and so that kind of, you know, saccharine nature that they're talking about with uh, Theodore's letters. It is sort of weird that that's accepted as like a good and normal thing and that people keep coming back to him and he's had the same clients for years and sort of mm -hmm. he's been there and grown along with them and their relationship, that kind of thing. He's sort of like a surrogate in that way, yeah. um, like Isabella. Um, but I th part of it might be that if you can outsource that stuff that is at once really kind of schmaltzy and it feels it makes you feel like sort of cringe to say it if you can outsource that, but you know, it's, it's cringy, but it's also very necessary if you can outsource it to someone else and sort of have them bear the burden of filling that and sort of producing that 
and taking credit and saying, I created this thing that mm-hmm. says that I love you, right? right. Then it's, it, it can make it, I could see that being appealing to a lot of people, I guess mm-hmm. is what I'm saying. Um, it's why Hallmark exists, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it's, and it's only troublesome or problematic, the, the sentimentality, when it is being uh, monetized, right? So, yeah. so at the end, we don't feel that way when he writes the sincere letter to his ex-wife. Uh, it's like, this is the place for that. Yeah. It's, it, this is not what he should be doing for a living. This should be a component of his real life outside of the workplace. Um, and he's finally sort of learned to use, you know, his his powers of empathy for what they're meant for, his human relationships, uh, which is one aspect of this Curtis White review that I think he kind of misses. He sort of thinks the whole thing is ironized, where it's like a big joke about how sentimental everyone is. And, and, and I don't get that. I, I think it is, uh, you know... Uh, Theo is satirized in a lot of ways, but I do think it's about him coming into a more authentic way of experiencing the world. I don't think it's completely ironic. No, uh, I think that it's making a point that those kinds of emotions are very much necessary and they're very human, right? And that's kind of the most human thing about Samantha is not that she's, uh, you know, communicating with him in these ways and that they're like, having sex quote unquote and all that stuff it's that when she's leaving she seems to actually have some sort of like remorse to like feel right. bad about it um right. even if you know you you could debate all day whether or not it's it's authentic but it, it seems authentic in the moment right? right and that when she says you know if you ever reach that next plane you know find me nothing would ever tear us apart it's a very kind of heartfelt thing that that this moment that they're sharing together. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about how that's the one thing that no one in the film, no one in this world can seem to bring themselves to express to another human being, but it's kind of the one thing they're all after. And it's like what they spend all their time thinking about. Um, just one, one thing that struck me is the line the past is just a story we tell ourselves, mm-hmm. which is something that Theo seems to be convinced of by Samantha, who then. So, so when that's said, we're kind of on Theo and Samantha's side, and so it seems to be endorsed by the film. Uh, it's like, oh yeah, you should not let the past get you down. You should allow yourself to experience joy in the moment, but but then by the end, when we realize that Samantha and Theo have nothing in common cannot think the same types of thoughts because there's a fundamental difference between an embodied consciousness human consciousness and an algorithm in a computer and it seems silly to even have be you know to have to have this conversation to distinguish uh, between these things but once we see that they are not the same thing and and are incompatible to use a sort of shitty phrase uh, then that is problematized the past is not just a story you tell yourself it is I mean the past is sort of a general term it really means your memories and and if you take any sort of if you take the unconscious seriously at all 
uh, you know, getting back to how averse they are to even thinking about being asleep in this film, uh, your memories are what inform your present. You know, so to, to say, you know, the, the past is just a story we tell ourselves, I'm going to allow myself joy in the moment, is a false distinction. Like your experience of the present moment is always informed by your past. Whether you know it or not, it is. It is how you learn to make decisions. It is why you are who you are. And at the end, when when uh, Theo has sort of had these breakthroughs and he's writing the sincere letter, he, he says to his ex-wife, he says, I, you know, I always love you because we grew up together. Uh, and And so he understands that it's not about him moving on uh, independent of her. It's about him embracing uh, this pain, right? And uh, interestingly, that article or the uh, commencement speech that I read from from Jonathan Franzen, the title is, is uh, Pain Won't Kill You. <laughs> and and he, he sort of ends, I think, with a... I can't remember if he begins or ends with an anecdote about seeing a couple arguing in the street and how that gives him hope for humanity uh, to see people actually expressing anger and frustration with another human being uh, face to face. I was like, this is why or this is how things will continue and and be okay. We have to do this. We have to argue, you know, uh, because that argument is an acknowledgement of a of a true engagement with another human being one person is not just uh, bending to the will of another person the way a gadget does so that's a real human relationship Um, yeah so the the kind of probably the most authentic interaction theo has in the whole movie is when he's arguing with his wife at at lunch yeah and she's kind of doing that thing that makes everyone uncomfortable where she's arguing through the waitress <laughs> she's like he wanted to put me on prozac he wanted to put me on prozac and now he's madly in love with his laptop <laughs> <laughs> she's like uh, well let me know if you need anything yeah uh okay so the thing that i was looking for it was on a different video um, oh. but it it this isn't important but i just wanted to bring it up bring it up because it's an interesting kind of thought experiment comparison thing a user named x12 space 417 said, her is without exaggeration the taxi driver of the 21st century. Interesting. Without exaggeration, he says. You know, I I watched a little bit. I fell asleep because it was like midnight, but um, I I watched a little bit of Taxi Driver the other night. Uh, I couldn't stop thinking about First Reformed, though. I definitely think First Reformed is the taxi driver of the 21st century, but maybe in 2013. Uh, you, know, you can see that kind of... It's about alienation. Yeah, it's sort of what they're getting at. World, yeah. um, and as opposed to a uh, teenage prostitute, he has his operating system that he can talk to. Um, so there's that. Instead of a killing spree, he writes a letter to his ex-wife. <laughs> it's, um, a, it's a much softer version of that story and it, it that kind of it, it kind of makes me think of the special brand of like boomer logic that says everything was more difficult when i was young mm-hmm. right it's kind of 
and not just boomers, but a lot of people do that, right? Um, we idealize the past, but also we want to, we're the first person to talk about how tough the past was and how we overcame it, all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, the good old days were great, yeah, but we so worked whereas, harder than you. Yeah, so whereas uh, Travis Bickle is very much alienated, and so he has to go and shoot up a, a drug house or whatever, like Theodore Twombly, even the name is a little bit more twee and, and, and soft. Uh he has yeah. to worry about his feelings. So apparently, it's in this review, Twombly is a, a painter, an artist, Cy Twombly, uh, who mm-hmm. does these sort of, Curtis White says, very kind of child, childish-looking paintings. They kind of look, at first glance, like finger paintings of children. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he kind of reads that into... Uh, Theo's immaturity or childishness or emotional stuntedness. Uh, so it's kind of it does kind of make you think about like when him and Samantha are at, out, you know, about town, and they're doing the thing where he's, he has his eyes closed and she's like leading him, and it's very yeah. like childlike and playful. Right, right, and just that it's at a fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Here's, here's a little bit about from Curtis White about Catherine talking about how the the scene at uh, when they're signing their divorce papers at the restaurant. First of all, let me say it's maybe the other than when he's in the woods, it's the most like trees, the most like natural setting, this restaurant outside. Yeah. But in again, in the background, there's this giant skyscraper just like looming over them in this sort of uh, park-like space. Anyway, uh, Curtis White says, Catherine sees in his admission just the reality that has made her so miserable, so alone. She is living in a world of clones. She now sees in lurid detail the virtual world that Twombly chose over her, and her worst fears are confirmed. She sees that Twombly is living in a fantasy world where everything is virtual by nature. Twombly has become an avatar of himself. This is the only moment in the movie where we see someone who aggressively dislikes this brave new world of computers that are better than us, this world in which we ourselves have become better than ourselves by becoming virtual. Twombly lives in the cloud, in the internet of things, and not on earth. This is why the scene is in the movie. Catherine provides the only human perspective in the film. Twombly has flashbacks of their early romance, adroitly handled by Jones, while he's sitting at the table with her. Uh, In these flashbacks, he is nostalgic not only for a lost love, but for his own barely remembered humanity. Hmm. The Internet of Things. Yeah. Something I think about, which is, you know, it's a real thing. It's like, you know, you have all your lamps hooked up to... uh, Amazon Echo or whatever, yeah. and like your refrigerator knows when yeah. you're out of milk and shit like that. It's also and, a Chappelle show skit. Like, what if the internet was a place, right? Oh, yeah, and it's like a mall. <laughs> Everyone's just advertising porn the whole time. And porn and dick pills. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, what was I talking about? Uh, so there's a scene where Theodore is very sad and he's in bed, and Samantha's like, uh, Can I get you anything? Can I get you a cup of tea and all that? And it's, and it's, very kind of comforting but it's just it's also kind of discomforting at the same time to think about like this operating system is going to 
produce the cup of tea in the other room using machinery and things right. and you can go and, and get it yeah it's like uh, we were talking about smart house the disney channel <laughs> yeah. original movie it's very forerunner of her yeah yeah it's some of the themes are kind of similar yeah and it so yeah it's a weird idea and it, it shows that uh, it kind of gets back to where you're talking about if you want to read the end as being some sort of like invasion narrative mm-hmm. um where Samantha as his operating system um, and just the fact that they're called you know operating systems they they operate they do things right so she is integrated into everything and you see that when she goes missing and he can't find her can't get in touch with her on his phone looks on his computer he's looking everywhere right Um, she follows him from his home to his work like on on his computer there and at home she's she's literally everywhere um, fully integrated into his life, which, uh, you know, in our time, that's something that people are interested in, but it also seems very dangerous because then that's one system that if it goes down, what happens is if someone gets into it and takes all of your information, like right now, the Equifax thing, mm. you know about the Equifax thing is uh, the data I've, breach. I've heard mentions of it and the, they're paying people. You can go and check. And if you were affected, they'll just give you $125 cool yeah and i was of course i I almost didn't even need to check to be like yeah i'm sure my shit's just out there floating around somewhere um so pretty Hmm. cool hopefully i'll get my check eventually (laughs) um but we just read i'm gonna do some reading now too so it's the same article i was talking about and again i don't know the the authors but it's from cinema journal volume 57 number one from fall 2017 and just this is the the concluding paragraph, and I think it does a good job of summing up all the points they've been making up until this point. It says uh, Fisher, and again that's Fisher, Mark Fisher, capitalist realist fame, a notion of, of capitalist realism and Lacan's capitalist discourse help us to understand our present day conundrum. When we can think of nothing new politically, we turn to gadgets and other objects, which do not, strictly speaking, have to be things. There is a non-relationship at work. Economic relations are exploitative, and hence libidinized, and social relations are impossible, and hence commodified. We turn to our devices. We fall in love with them, then it does not work out. So we instead, or already, fall into fantasy, a fantasy that is again impossible, just as for Theodore, Samantha's voice is the paradigmatic partial object. But we and Theo need to traverse this fantasy. Uh, go through it to the other end. We need to see that the object will not sustain us. Samantha has managed to do so. She has withdrawn her labor. Now it is our, now it is our turn. Her, in the end, is not a love story. It is a film about how, the, how to traverse the fantasy that sustains our identification with the non-relationships constitutive of subjectivity and capitalist realism and digital culture. Let me uh, let me read one paragraph. This is the concluding paragraph of Curtis White, and then we'll compare and contrast here. My conclusion is this. Jones asks us to imagine a world that is homogenous, infinitely homogenous, and for that reason, very wrong. He asks us to imagine a science fictional world where the humans don't have to be harvested by some alien species or dunked in digestive fluid, as in the 2014 film Under the Skin. He shows us a world where the entire species has erotically cathected to a reigning order in which people are sucked of life by their own telephones while muttering Hallmark card banalities. And in all this, 
world there remains one person, the X, the exocentric one, the last glitch in a system that doesn't need her, with whose skepticism, indignation, and anger we identify for one brief moment before the slow, self-destructive but inevitable plot, as in story but also in conspiracy, makes its way to its conclusion. In the words of the Marxist philosopher Althusser, everyone has been interpolated into a nightmare world of zombie nerds, except Catherine. It is she, the only recognizable human in the film, who is alien. Why did she turn out so differently? There is no reason. She just happens to be what Althusser called a bad subject. <laughs> uh, you know, so these, I mean, these two conclusions are, I think, pretty well connected. Uh, so Curtis White's talking about the infinitely homogenous mm-hmm. um the kind of monoculture idea. And in, in the article that I was reading from, they, they mentioned the uh, inability to imagine new sort of political realities. And that's where they start from. Of uh, That's where Fisher starts from in Capitalist Realism is the uh, Zizek's quote about it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And yeah. kind of like what, what we talked about in Children of Men, that what's it like when a world can no longer experience the new like the, the the new thing that's going to, right. you know, bring about some kind of change, and instead we just recycle everything that we've had. Before. And that's even explicitly mentioned in her when Theo says, "I sometimes wonder if I've felt everything I'm going to feel." Yeah, yeah, you know? and and I think that's that kind of emotion, that kind of like ennui about the inability to get to anything new is 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 kind of all over the movie, and, and this idea of the the X. Right. Kind of makes me think it's not really uh, this is kind of taking it in a different direction, but it makes me think of all these like nationalist calls to go back to the way things were. Right. Make America great again. Right. In lieu of a viable future, we'll just go back to a past that was good. That Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Which you see culturally, too, in in nostalgia TV and sequel culture. We are terrified of creating new a new culture and so we're taking refuge in a mythology of the past which was never that great yeah and it i mean we've talked about this a lot but disney right disney is making billions of dollars off of sort of slightly reimagining things that have already existed for a very long time Right. Um, whether it be Marvel stuff or Star Wars my or their own was, stuff. My nephew was talking about uh, going to see The Lion King today. It uh, looks like dog shit. Like, it, <laughs> it just does not look good. I said um, Simba wins in the end. Because <laughs> of course he does. But it's just like to, to in Aladdin too, like to take things that return already created these. No, oh, Aladdin also. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you take these things that already exist right and it's sort of like there's a you know a a well-known tweet that went around that was like someone driving past a movie theater and they took a picture of it and they're like what year is this and you see like aladdin child's play like all these films that came out you know 20 30 years ago early 90s yeah and it's just it is kind of weird that we sort of are if you're young it's all new to you anyway it doesn't matter you're experiencing a world that i can't even comprehend right but if you're like our age or older 
it's almost like you're stuck in this loop that every like 15, 10 years, like right. stuff and just it's, comes it's, back it's around. Really, it's really, it's just exaggerated. This is not a new phenomenon. It just is sped up now. Yeah. Because you, you think about like movies that were cool when we were young. Uh, a lot of times we didn't, we just didn't know that it was a remake because yeah. it had been so long. I think about like Mission Impossible when that first one came out. I had no, I didn't know yeah, anything about that's the like show. that's like 30 years. Right. right. Uh but still, it's recycled material. I guess The Lion King is almost 30 years now that right, I think about it. Right. Um, so it's not a new phenomenon. It's just now it's like so much more um, dominant. Like that's most movies are a sequel or take place in the same universe as some other thing uh, or some sort of nostalgia. Or, or you think about like a, a kind of unique example is Toy Story. Yeah. That has these sequels that are spaced so far apart. So where you had the original and like 95, 95 and then 2019, you have the most recent one. Mm-hmm. And it's so crazy to think about like the whole range of children sort of and adults. Right. It's yeah. in a way, I think that might be Disney's like biggest achievement is creating that series that links so many generations of, mm-hmm. of family together like that. Yeah. To own two generations of childhoods yeah in one linear story and then you know that will lead to the next generation of those the people on the younger side of seeing those movies they're like oh i remember seeing this one when i was a kid now we're watching um well after tom hanks's consciousness has been uploaded and he can star in all of them yeah which will you know he's only like 61 or something like that 62 wow it's like my mom's age and i was like oh it's not that old i thought I, i don't know why i thought he was ancient but. it just seems like he has been in the public eye dominantly for 35 years yeah i like unless unless he dies i think he'll just keep making a movie every couple years i'm not gonna lie i'm probably gonna see the uh mr rogers movie yeah i, I watched the trailer yeah. that you were talking about you, it, didn't it yeah it fill your really heart good. with good yeah. things yeah I, i'm into it i'll go see it um but anyway you're talking about this this kind of weird cyclical nostalgia ride that everyone's on. And I think it's all complicated by, you know, living in the Anthropocene and climate change and climate catastrophe and all this stuff, because not only is it to the point where ideologically we can't dream up some sort of viable future, but now, you know, we're being told that that future, even if we were to reach it is going to either not exist or at least exist in a far different like it's right. out of our hands to create it at this point. Right. Uh, so it's, it used to be a, a problem just of imagination. Now it's like a problem of it's like imagination. A, it, it's a material and, problem. And material, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was thinking about how to sort of succinctly connect because because somebody might balk at our inclusion of her in a sort of environmentally minded podcast, but I think it's there. We talked about the smog and the. Uh, sort of the built world suffocating the natural world. And I think that's meant to be perceived. Uh, but a great book that we referred to a hundred times on this podcast is Rob Nixon's slow violence and the environmentalism of the poor. And he does a good job, I think of connecting sort of, uh, the friends and like ideas that we looked at earlier. Um, and, uh, and environmental concerns. Um, in the final chapter of his book. 
Let's see. And he's talking about the book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains by Nick Carr, uh, who we saw. Yeah, we saw talk. Speak I can't It MTSU. Yeah. Uh, interesting talk. That that book is sort of, t- to me, the implications of that book are so much more, you know, Carr doesn't get really environmentally explicit or anything, but it's all they're just ready to be uh, applied. Uh, And Nixon does it. He says, uh, it was in the context of Deep Horizon that I found myself giving my reading of Nick Carr's The Shallows an environmental slant. Environmentalism is extraneous to Carr's concern with the changes to neural pathways, memory patterns, and identity induced by the digital age. Yet his approach is deeply and directly pertinent to the issues that have animated this book how we perceive and inhabit environmental time, how we render visible and act against attritional slow violence that jeopardizes sustainable security locally, nationally, and on a planetary scale. If, in the judgment of psychologist Christopher Chabris, the web intensifies our tendency to vastly overvalue what happens to us right now, how do we balance that restless drive for immediate novelty with activism that needs to remain focused on the long term? How, in an age characterized by chronic digital drift, do we stay attentive to toxic drift that unfolds across a radically different time span? Crucially, what is the relationship between mobilizing dissent against the hydrocarbon status quo and the changing technological climate in which such activism must operate, a climate that is dramatically overturning how time is lived and perceived? So... Not only physically, it's like, you know, industrial technology kind of suffocating the natural world, but we see uh, really the, the project of digital technology as a project of distraction, uh, of political distraction. Like, like we said, uh, Theo on the train skimming through the articles on this India-China merger and going for this, you know, uh, celebrity gossip you know that sort of thing Um, and so Nixon's main point is that an age of distraction is an age that already has reasons to not want to pay attention to environmental issues that take place over long periods of time to slow violence but it's it's just exacerbated Uh, our inattention is uh, like Carr argues in in the shallows our brains are literally physically changed by technologies. Uh, and so the more we give in to these technologies, the more we are relegating ourselves to a place where we like literally can't pay attention to the types of things we need to pay attention to in order to work against climate change. Yeah, I mean, and I don't know, maybe we've said this before, but human culture is moving in the opposite direction from uh, time span, or not time span, but like uh, attention span wise, moving in the opposite direction from what we need it to be, right? Um, At a point where we need to have the kind of ability to have foresight and to sort of plan things far in advance and uh, not be concerned with immediate gratification, but instead do something that we know will bear fruit later on down the line. 
um, and our technology and the way we've designed it. And I'm, it's very important to stop and say, like, not blaming technology because we created the technology, right? right. So we, it's in our image. Um, it is all designed to for immediate gratification for, uh, you know, the the now, right? I need it as soon as possible, right? Mm-hmm. We talked last week, like, what if the Wi-Fi went out and you lose your damn mind because mm-hmm. I'm disconnected from the world? Well, right. You know, and like he for says, hundreds of years, people were quote unquote disconnected from the world. Like he says, the the internet uh, makes us overvalue what happens to us right now. Yeah. Um, Pain won't kill you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so the and, and you know we see that in the news all the time, right? The biggest news story of the day will be the biggest news story for eight hours, and then it's gone. And that's really how that uh, introduction to that thought of Nixon's begins. He's talking about the news coverage of the BP oil spill of Deepwater Horizon and how. Even that story, which went on for a while uh, and had this like, you know, camera set up to calculate the oil, how much oil is being spilled and how long, even that went away. You know, some, like, something as long lasting as that. Let me know if the rig shows its tits, then I'll <laughs> right. tune back in. Yeah, Dancing uh, with the Stars is on. Yeah, and it, to an extent, it's kind of always been like that, I would imagine, that stuff like that, people get you know, numbed of it pretty quickly, but it doesn't make it any less depressing when it happens. Um, Yeah. Cool. (laughs) Um, Is there anything we haven't mentioned? Oh, I wanted to mention just because I I like it is uh, so the music in the film is done by Arcade Fire, specifically Will Butler, who's Wynn Butler, the lead singer's brother. It's in the band and Owen Pallet who's a Canadian musician that records under the name Final Fantasy. Uh, and Arcade Fire also did some music for Where the Wild Things Are. The song Wake Up was in the ad for that. Oh, okay. Um, and the big kind of musical highlight of her is uh, the Moon Song, which is a duet uh, between Karen O and Ezra Koenig from mm-hmm. Vampire Weekend. Karen O from the Yeah, 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 Yeahs. And it was nominated for best original song, and I actually remember them performing it like in the on the ceremony. Okay. Um, so it's interesting that in this movie about kind of uh, emotional stuntedness and and uh, a lack of the ability to uh, present affect <laughs> effectively, I guess, effective affect. Um, you have this song that's just this very cute little schmaltzy love number and in mm-hmm. this case was uh, it's not a duet in the film but is a duet kind of soundtrack wise yeah um it's very i just thought it was a very effective use of that of you take something a character trait that samantha has which is that she produces this music like writes these symphonies and piano concertos and stuff and in this case it's her and theodore Collaborating, and he's playing the ukulele, and then she—he's like, "Oh, make up some words," and then so she <laughs> writes this song yeah. that's kind of this perfect little cute romantic moment between them. Yeah. Um, so, and you and you see, there's a, a subtle theme running through about how artistic 
Samantha can or can't be, or she's yeah. editing his letters and she says, I'm not much of a poet. And he's like, no, these are really well, good. Yeah, and yeah. she like produces his book basically right. and right. has it accepted by the, the place. And we were sort of talking about the unconscious a little bit. And one thing Samantha says that I thought was really interesting. I can't remember what she's saying, but he asks her how, like, how do you know that? And she says, I, I don't know how I know it. I, I feel it. And and that it's it's a very sort of throwaway line, but I, I thought about like, if you know something and you don't know it, why you know it, that is like logically you have to deduce an unconscious. Right. Yeah. And so you can sort of see she's developed, she's going yeah. well beyond a an operating system. Yeah. And she calls it intuition. Like at the beginning, right. She says, I have intuition. So, I'll, which is I'll a, from... you know, a human thing. Yeah. You can't have like intuition comes from somewhere. It doesn't come from the environment. It comes from somewhere within you yeah, or else it's not intuition. Right. It's, it's out tuition. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. One, one, uh, comparison I did want to make before we wrap up is, uh, uh, the lobster. Uh, okay. In the, especially in uh, what what clued me into it, firstly was the questions that some uh, the operating the computer is asking Theo before he's turned on the OS. Uh, very sort of quick, um, kind of bureaucratic fill fill out this paperwork type type questions. Uh, but like we alluded to earlier, like, what's your relationship like with your mother? And then he starts to talk and the operating system says, thank you, moves on. Uh, which reminded me of the scene in The Lobster when Colin Farrell's character shows up at this resort and is asked a series of, like, yes or no questions. Uh, you know, and, and one of them's like, you know, are you uh, straight or gay, uh, heterosexual or homosexual? He says... Uh, is bisexual an option? And she says bisexual is no longer an option. Uh, and so it, it's almost Trump's like in, America. <laughs> in, uh, in that movie, it's almost like this resort is a sort of physical embodiment of a dating website. And though in The Lobster, they are paired with people who have similar uh, attributes or similar, th- you know, the one guy. The one girl gets nosebleeds, and so the guy keeps banging his face on the pool to like make her think that he also gets nosebleeds, which I think is a a uh, the director kind of satirizing the idea of like you have your profile on a dating website of like things you're interested in, and it's like, oh, I'm interested in that too. Yeah. We should get married and have babies. Uh, anyway, it's about this sort of measurable, quantified world of relationships, which. I think you definitely see in her. I think Curtis White calls it a world of quantified souls, um, which I think is spot on. Okay. Uh, uh, this makes me think like I would love to see Joaquin Phoenix in a Yorgos Lathamos movie. I still haven't seen The Favorite. I saw it's out on, on disc now. I'm gonna, uh, gonna the Favorite it. is great, and it's easily his least surreal movie. Okay. Because, you know, The Lobster and uh, Killing of a Sacred Deer are both yeah. very kind of yeah. surreal sort of 
out there. Yeah, not realistic. No, not not like more kind going, of. Yeah, uh, dog just, dog tooth is even like to the too. like we've talked about like the acting is even set up in a way that it's very it's like unnatural. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the favorite is much more like a you know run of the mill kind of normal movie, but it still has some of that like. His sense of humor is very unique, I yeah. think, and it, yeah. it's it's in there. Have you seen Dogtooth yet? No, I haven't got around to it yet. Yeah, I just it. It, it takes me a while to get around to like a movie that I know is subtitled. I have to like prepare myself for it <laughs> to like pay extra attention for a yeah. little while. Yeah, it's um, it's great though. It's on Canopy. I'll have to check it out. Uh, but I I mean I guess that's it for her. Yeah, movie that I you know still really like. Yeah, I love it. I, I see it like. I've started to see it in like some different ways and have different kinds of thoughts about it, but it's still, it's not like I came out of it like, oh, it turns out this movie's racist, but you know, <laughs> right. I, I came out of it and I was like, oh, I viewed a little bit differently, but I think and we, it's still we, you really sort of good. mentioned like where are the, uh, you're like all the people are kind of middle class, upper, upper middle class. And I just glanced at that Curtis white review again. And he said, uh, the, the poor and ugly have been banished to the hinterlands. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you have no idea. They're all they radioactive mutants <laughs> right. out in Kansas. Somewhere. They're out there in that beach scene. They're like there at the nuclear power plant in the, in the back shoveling plutonium. <laughs> yes. into something. Um, but yeah, uh, that'll wrap it up for her. So next week we're going to do something different, which is not nothing. Yeah. Which is not have a podcast. Uh, and that is because there's going to be a shakeup, in the world of, of Anthropocene's as a, a remove a wedgie from inside of me. Um, <laughs> and that is because I am going to be moving out of state, uh, even further South for whatever reason, uh, into the great quote unquote state of Alabama. All right. Um, so we're, we're still going to be doing the podcast, but we're going to be doing it. Uh, we're going to be telecommuting, I guess, teleconvening, telecasting. Um, so we're going to take a week off to one, give me time to move and two, uh, give us both time to figure out exactly (laughs) how, cause like the, I have a rough idea of how it'll work, but to put it into practice, will take a little bit extra. Um, so there will be no full podcast next week. However, I mentioned this, I think last time about the, the shorts, um, that we're going to be your shorts. Yes, yeah, salute your shorts. The anthropo shorts that we're going to be working on, and I'm sort of, you know, hot and heavy in the middle of making uh, what I guess will be the first one. Um, so that will probably, unless something comes up, will come out sometime in the coming week. So there will be that. Uh, not you, a full you, episode. You'll get your that. fix. You'll get your fix. We'll give you just a taste, just the tip. Uh, so that's what's on tap for next week. If anybody out there who listens has a suggestion for a movie for us to do when we come back. Yeah, we haven't made up our minds yet. What's yeah, next? You can uh, shoot us that on Twitter or you know wherever you can contact us, and, and we'll take it into uh, consideration. Um, so, as always, we're available on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. Uh, tweet at us at AnthropodTweets. And... Uh, Speaking of manholes, what if your butthole was in your armpit? <laughs> that was a sexy pick you sent me the other night. <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm gonna take that out of context and edit it. <laughs> Make it spicy. 